guys. I love weddings. Oh, this is one of the best ever. Uh, don't they look perfect together? <laughs> yeah, but so did Renee and Kenny. <laughs> what? Zellweger and Chesney? They look great together, too. Let's just hope this marriage doesn't end in fraud. <laughs> what? Wish them luck. The only thing higher than gas prices in this country are divorce rates. <laughs> So, uh, what would be your first thought if Jesus was going to come to your wedding? Would you think to you, know, you, you saved the best wine for last? And it's a famous story. And so, I want to step back from like just our familiarity with this story and try to look at it maybe with, with uh, new eyes. So, John starts this journey of getting to know Jesus by pointing to the climax of the story. And we'll see that as we go along. John is a book that's meant to be read and reread. It's a very deep book. It's like one of those movies that makes more sense the second time you watch it. The Gospel of John is a book that we can read over and over again and grow in our understanding of Jesus. And in this first story, we see Jesus attending a wedding. It's an interesting turn of events that we have here. I was slated to preach this message, uh, John chapter 2, a couple weeks ago. day, amazingly enough. Did this just die? I'm pretty loud. Um, maybe my shirt pushed the button. No, I know that. I can hear myself. Um, so, where was I? So, Bob calls me and says, we want to do this thing on this day. And I said, that's crazy. Try this one. We'll do it hip-hop style. So, Jesus shows up at this wedding. He's attending a wedding in Cana. And what we see in the story is not that Jesus shows up as a wet blanket at this wedding. Not that Jesus shows up and then everything's kind of like, uh, wah, wah, here comes Jesus. Put the wine away. In fact, they run out of wine. And Jesus brings joy to this wedding in the form of the best wine that they've ever had. He saves the family from embarrassment and he gives his disciples a glimpse of his glory to begin this strengthening of their faith in understanding who he is. So my first point is religion runs dry. In the scripture in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8, the scripture says, Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to Him, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and His bride has prepared herself. She has given the finest, she has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. 
No, wait. That, that's the wrong scripture. I, I jumped ahead. That's the wrong wedding celebration. Let's go back to the one that we're on. John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, so it says his mother was there and he was invited. So what we gather from this is mom's involved in the wedding somehow. Either they're related or she's a friend. She's helping him out. So she knows what's going on behind the scenes. She knows that the wedding is running out of wine. Now you have to sort of put aside your understanding of an American wedding and transport yourself back to this time, this day and age. This wedding is the culmination of a process that's been taking place in these people's lives. And this wedding feast that they're at is, a, is a, an event in their culture that could last up to seven days or, or sometimes longer. So these people were down to party for a long time and celebrate this wedding. So Jesus shows up at this, at this wedding at the time when his mom says, we've run out of wine. We're out of wine. So Jesus and his disciples were invited. They showed up. But his mom was helping out behind the scenes. She kind of knows what's going on. Okay? So mom comes up to him. They have no wine. Jesus gives her this weird response. And there's a lot of different translations of it. It's, it's sort of a, a Jewish idiom. And he says in this translation, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus' mother comes up to him, and he gives her this sort of rude response. It's, it's, it, doesn't make, it doesn't feel like a Jesus kind of response in this story. And let me say this. She, she comes up to Jesus and asks him to do something, not because she expects him to fill up ceremonial washing jars with water and turn it into wine. His mom does not expect that. He didn't do it when he was a kid. He didn't make Kool-Aid or something when he was a kid or make clay birds come alive. There's a lot of legendary stories about him. She's approaching Jesus because he's the oldest son in her family. He's the one that's responsible for stuff in their family. And if she's going to ask somebody in her family to help, help out this other family, it's going to be him. So she comes up to Jesus and asks him, you got to do something for this family. They're out of wine. This is super embarrassing for them. This is going to ruin the celebration because wine is the central thing in, in celebrating. So we kind of need to step back from this story and try to understand what's going on. Turning water into wine is a famous story. You know, there's jokes about it. Jesus and his disciples walk into a bar. Jesus walks up to the bartender and says, Excuse me, can I get 13 waters? And he winks at his disciples. So a lot of people know this story, right? It's, it's something that's well known in our culture, but we need to step back from the story to understand the point of it. It's an amazing story, and it's a true story, but at the time, it was unexpected. Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth Ministries Unlimited, or Universal, or no, International, was not known for producing good wine. This was not something that anyone expected to happen at this point, including Mary when she's saying they're out of wine. She's just probably expecting him to go with their own money and, and get some more wine for these people. But Jesus changes things. <clears throat> we would really expect sort of more of the same when Jesus shows up, that things would go as they always do. You buy wine from the wine people and you bring it and you have more wine and you drink it. 
And Jesus response is this weird response because he says, what does this have to do with me and my hour has not yet come? It's such an awesome thing. This is one of the things I love about the book of John. He says, what does it have to do with me? And it's sort of a rude response. And we see it, it's used quite a few times in the scripture. It's this saying that people have that sort of means like, I'm not involved in this, but I'll, but I'll help you. Like, what does it have to do with me? But I'm going to help. They kind of know that you're going to help them when you say this same. So that's, that's Mary's response is like, okay, do whatever he tells you. Mary's response really is, is a response of faith in Jesus. And Jesus is saying, what, what does it have to do with me? I'm not responsible for these people's shortage of wine. They ran out of wine. What, what it, like, why are you telling me, right? I just got invited to the wedding. I was coming just to hang out and have a good time. Now I got to know about them not having enough wine? That doesn't have anything to do with me. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. And I love this in John because John's telling us a story as well as relating what's happening. And Jesus is talking to Mary and he's talking to us. Because in this story, this, this beginning of the story at the wedding, Jesus is saying, my hour has not yet come. I don't know what Mary thought of that part of it, right? What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The disciples are there, Mary's there. She's probably like, okay, you're, I don't know, you're going to give a speech. I don't know what you're talking about, your hour has not yet come. We know what he's talking about now because whenever Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, he's pointing to the cross. He's pointing to where he's headed. And so here at the beginning of this story, John is already pointing to the end of the story for us. It's almost like Jesus is talking to Mary. He's like, what does this have to do with me? And he's telling us, my hour has not yet come. We're involved, we're very much invited into this story and to understand it. And there's so much that we can dig out of it. But as I reflected on this section, it it hit me that Jesus is saying, what, John, what, what what do I have to do with you? Why should, I, why should I have laid down my life for you? I don't have anything to do with the bad decisions that you made. I don't, I don't have to save you from your sins. What does this have to do with me? But he finishes it by saying, my hour has not yet come. Because he has already begun the process of doing something about this people who have turned away from him. Who he doesn't really have to have anything to do with. And yet he has already decided that he's going to do something about it. So Mary responds in faith. Do whatever he tells you. And I was reading, uh, what's his name? Tom Wright. N.T. Wright. And he's, he's writing about this and he says, that's the thing right there. Like, that's really good advice when it comes to following Jesus. Do whatever he tells you. I'm like, oh, brilliant. That's true. And this, this scene of the wine running out is sort of, a picture of our effort, our best laid plans falling short. The family didn't buy enough wine for the celebrants. And throughout scripture, wine brings joy. So this party is about to crash. This party is about to come to an end. And, and our human effort also comes to an end. Our, our efforts at making ourselves right, at our self-righteousness, it really falls short. And the thing that really irks us is that we know it. We have a conscience that says, you don't even live up to your own standard. This happens to me a lot when, I, when I'm driving in traffic because I hold other people to a high standard. And I notice it myself. Like, if you don't go when that light turns green, you're evil. You have, like, a wicked heart. And then I'm sitting at the light, 
and I kind of pause for a second, and I'm like, oh, like, my own sta- by my own standard, I'm condemned. Like, our human effort falls short. But God's plans for us, God has planned for us to have joy in our lives. He's designed a world that provides joy, even in spite of the issues and the struggles that we face. Even in spite of the fact that these people were not smart enough to plan out their wedding, Jesus goes ahead and fixes it. It's not based on them. It's based on his own decision. He already said, I'm not even related to this, but I'm going to fix it. God plans for you to have joy in your life. Psalm 104 says, to, speaking to, the, to God, you cause grass to grow for the livestock and plant plants for people to use. You allow them to produce fruit from the earth, wine to make them glad, olive oil to soothe their skin, and bread to give them strength. Throughout scripture, wine makes people glad. So when Jesus shows up with wine, he's bringing gladness. He's bringing a celebration to this, to this wedding. He's not bringing, he's not the Debbie Downer of this celebration. So religion runs dry because the ceremonial practices God had lays out, laid out for his people were never meant to become religious rituals by which we could control God or we could manipulate God by doing what we think is right or saying what we, are the right religiously magical words to get God to do what we want him to do. No, all these things that God had given for his people, these ceremonial practices were signs they were, sh- they were types, they were shadows of what God was doing. They were intended to lead us to understand who God is. Not to make us righteous in and of ourselves. We often think of God in this transactional way. It's just our culture. Contract, we're all about contracts. What have you done for me lately, right? Like God, I do this, I go to church, I wear the right clothes, I do this and that, I don't chew gum, blah, blah, blah. And you're supposed to do this, that, and the other thing, right? That's how we treat God so much of the time. But this, even in these little scenarios that we create, they, they, they dry up, they run out. God intended for his plans and patterns to serve as signs, as shadows of the reality that was coming in Jesus. Human effort to maintain religious ritual feels wise because of its sort of harsh treatment of the body. Like I'm really proving myself to God here. But it's, the scripture says it's of no value. It's of no value in restraining fleshly indulgence. Harsh asceticism, harsh treatment of your body for religious purposes is sort of like macho religion. It's, it doesn't, it's kind of an upside-down macho-ness. I'm just going to be as pious and like holy as I can. But inside, it's just like you think you're Hulk Hogan of religion. You know, you're kneeling and praying, but really inside, you're like, So the law given by God and human effort were meant to run dry so that we could lay down our self-righteousness and follow the signs into relationship with God, a God who is there and is not silent. He became flesh and dwelt among us. All of these signs are pointing to this guy, and John is beginning to help us understand who he is. So my next point is changing the game. We would expect, I think... If you put yourself in, in the position of the, the first century person and you imagine, I'm waiting for the Messiah to come, the one who all Israel has been waiting for, he's going to fulfill everything for us. What would you imagine that he would do? 
probably just do everything that you're doing, but do it better. Do it perfectly. He's going to be the perfect prophet, priest, and king. He's going to do everything in the temple just perfect. He's going to be the new high priest. He's going to keep our, our ceremonies going. What else would you think? So John 2, 2 uh, 6 through 10 says, Now there were six stone water jars for Jewish rites of purification. John just drops this little hint about what these jars were for, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn out the water knew. So this guy, that he's sort of the MC of this event. He's the, he's the one that gets to kind of, he's, the, uh, he's helping guide the, like, what do you call it, wedding planner. He's helping everybody do what they're supposed to do, right? Because the bride and groom are just like in the days. They don't know what to do. The family just wants to celebrate. So he's keeping things going. This guy's done this a few times, so he knows what wine tastes like. And he knows good wine from bad wine. And when this guy tastes this, he's like, what? This is some good wine. You know, the way things are always are is you just get people a little bit, you know, happy. And then you bring out the watered-down wine, and they don't really know the difference. But you guys, you brought out the, that whatever that was that you ran out of, and now you're bringing out the best wine. You guys are changing it up. This is the reverse of how things are normally done. This is not how we normally do it. And Jesus is very intentionally doing this in these Jewish ceremonial washing jars. He says that. They, they, they outline what these are because wine comes in these other wine jugs that are kind of clay, but they would never use them for ceremonial washing because the wine jars can kind of like soak up uh, <laughs> bacteria. That's not the word. You know, when I was making this sermon and we talked about it on Thursday, there was a word that, that went out of my mind and it's been gone ever since. So whatever it was, impurities. Thank you. There you go. Testimony. Uh, so it doesn't soak up impurities. They see the stone as like an impervious thing, that it's clean, clean, pure water that you can ceremonially wash your hands in before you eat, okay? It's not like us. It's not, it's not hand sanitizer that doesn't really do anything helpful, but we, we just assure ourselves that it kills bacteria. And uh, it's, it's just water. They splash it on their hands, and it's a ceremony, Okay? Now, Jesus takes these vessels, he takes these things that were from the old way, and he says, I'm going to fill those with wine. Jesus puts new wine into these old vessels. They were never intended to do that. So when Jesus says, fill those up with water, they weren't thinking, they would never have thought, oh, you're going to make that into wine. Like, even in their day, like, even, we've heard the story, and if we were there, and he did that, we might have been thinking, like, is this the wine story? I don't remember, like... Are you going to fill those with wine? Those aren't for wine. But Jesus is changing the game. He's not, here to, he's not here to perpetuate religion. Jesus is here to represent God on earth, God in the flesh, to say, I want you to be part of my family now. I want you to be part of me. I want you to know me like I know you so that you can grow up, so that you can become a person who fulfills the purpose for which I made you. You don't even know it because you're blinded by your own sin. And he shows up to this party not to just make things keep going as they always do. He says, we're going to do it different now. 
And this guy at the, this guy at the party is kind of helping us understand things are different now. Jesus changed the game. We would not have expected him to, to make this wine. The Messiah would come and be someone that just perfectly fits into the religious system. But Jesus comes, and he's just outside of it the whole time. He never even goes to Jerusalem until he goes there to die. That should be the place where he's lifted up, not on the cross, but lifted up and exa- like becomes a celebrity, like he's the one, right? He doesn't go to Jerusalem until he sets his face to Jerusalem because he knows that's where he's going to be killed. The very center of the religious system. Jesus here just kind of shatters our ideas of what should be done. And this story is the beginning of the end for the old system. It's run its course because the one that it points to is there with them. And notice Jesus doesn't announce to the feast what happened. He tells the servants, his mom and his disciples and the servants are there. He says, you guys fill it up and then just take some of that and give it to the guy. So they do it, right? And it says the guy didn't know where it came from, but the servants did. And Jesus doesn't run out and say, hey, Jesus International Ministries, right here, like, I'm here to change your water into wine. Like, you know, I'm going to be here all week. No, Jesus, he's not advertising himself. The point of this story is not the miracle that water becomes wine. The whole point of this story is that the disciples get a glimpse into God's glory. And that's the last point, the best for last. The actual point of this story is that this wedding feast, it's about who Jesus is. There's, there's like so many meta things going on here that I just love to dig into. And I had this whole thing about wedding and all the meaning that it is. And then when we talked about it in our cadre, they were like, can you shorten it? And I'm just like, oh, you guys, this is so awesome. They were right. But John, in this wedding feast, is inviting us further into the journey of knowing Jesus and witnessing with the disciples their growing trust in him and their belief in him as the Messiah. So in the best for last, in in verses 11 and 12, the scripture says, this time, this, the first of his signs, and John uses this term signs now, and John's book is divided up by these signs. In fact, there are seven of them. I was going to tell you to try to figure out how many there's seven, but since you forget sermons, try to figure out how many there were when you're, when you're reading through John. Sorry, I'm just kidding. I mean, you know, of course you remember our sermons. So the first of his signs, John says, that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. And his disciples believed in him. That's the point of the story right there. He manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the point of John. This is the point of why Jesus came, that we would believe in him. That's the invitation to everyone. Even if we don't know Jesus, we can begin to understand who he is and to believe in him. And John is helping us actually to believe in him. Caleb talked about it. The, the, the whole point of John, he's writing this story, and he's saying, I wrote this book so that you would continue to believe in him. I got a tail. 
So Jesus manifested his glory. He's letting his disciples in on who he is. This is not your average miracle worker. You know, this wasn't like almost wine, and then he like spritzes it, and it becomes wine, you know, like the guy that's almost blind, and then he could kind of see anyways. No. This is water that they went and got out of a well, poured it in there, and it became the best wine they've ever tasted. In this story, the hour has not yet come for them. The disciples get a glimpse, like, did you see that? Right? Because earlier Jesus said, hey, Nathaniel, was it? I saw you sitting under the tree. And he's, his mind is blown. He's like, oh, you're the Messiah. And Jesus said, you think that's, bit, you think that's a big deal? You're going to see a lot more than that. So now they see Jesus completely transform this water, which and there couldn't have been any like trick to it because it's in the stone washing jars, into wine right in front of them. And they're like, huh. His hour has not yet come, but it has for us. He didn't come to work miracles. He came to this feast. He didn't come to ruin this feast. He came to bring joy. He doesn't, he doesn't come to make your life worse. You're doing a good job of that on your own. He came to save you from your own devices. He came to save you from your own ideas, from your own plans. Because he's someone that knows everything. He's the one that's going to get us through. He's the one that's going to help us. So Jesus shows up. Now, for us, his hour has come. He's gone to the cross. He's paid the price so that we could be part of his family. But this story is still inviting us to understand who he is and what he's capable of. The first sign is at a wedding. And this is a loaded story. It's filled with possibilities and unexpected outcomes. He's not the Debbie Downer or wet blanket of this story. He's the one that makes this wedding happen. He's the one that makes this wedding feast happen. He's the source of joy. He's a mysterious but true friend who invites us into deeper relationship. And what do we do? Accept his invitation. We read in John 1, to those who believed in the name of the one that he sent, they're given the right to be called the children of God. We can become into a relationship with Christ through faith. That's it. No ceremonial washing. Jesus took care of it. It's an amazing thing. So now we get to see that John is purposely setting up this story. Because I read another passage from John earlier. John writes the book of Revelation as well. Chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. He hearkens back forward, I should say, to this ultimate wedding feast. This, this picture in Cana, the first of Jesus' signs, actually helps us see it's going to be the last thing that we do together with Jesus, in a sense, is a celebration. It's the celebration of this marriage in heaven. Revelation 19 says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder crying out. You know, it's like the, the state, like a soccer stadium just filled with crazy people singing and shouting that noise that you hear and they're saying hallelujah for the lord our god the almighty reigns let us rejoice and exult give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come his bride has made herself ready it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure for fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints and the angel said to me write this 
blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words are, these are the true words of God. Or these words are faithful and true. This is going down. This is what we're headed for. This is what you're invited to be part of. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus, remember, was called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in chapter 1. John starts his story at a wedding, this picture of a lifelong covenant commitment. Jesus has made this commitment to his bride, the people of God, the church of God, those who have faith in him. Jesus has made this commitment to us. And this, this wedding is a picture. There's an even deeper picture here. Here's my shortened version. In the Jewish wedding celebrations, it's a process. There's the betrothal. The parents decide, right? The good old-fashioned way. And uh, the dad comes with his son to the bride's house, and they say, our kids are going to get married. And they pay the bride price. And then they lock in this betrothal. These two are going to get married. But now there's a time of preparation. The, the, the groom has to go back home to his dad's house and build a place to come and get his bride. The bride For the bride, it's a time of purification. For the groom, it's a time of preparation. Jesus said, I'm going, I'm going to my father's house, and in my father's house are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. This is what Jesus is doing right now. He's preparing a place for those who would put their faith in him, to come and live together with him, to be part of this bride. And when, in the Jewish ceremony here, when the, when the groom would come back, he would, he would not announce his arrival. He would, once he got ready, it could be up to a year, he would come back at a time unexpected to the bride and say, time for our wedding and they would have their wedding and they would consummate their marriage and then they would have the wedding feast that would last about seven days ideally right can you imagine celebrating a wedding for seven days who has the time right seven hours we would just be like oh these people knew how to celebrate you know and once we get to heaven those of us from this generation will probably be like man this is a long celebration you know So we get to celebrate, we get, to, we get a, a really cool glimpse this morning of this picture of a lifelong covenant commitment to one another. We get to celebrate the reality of it today in our family. And we're gathered here together today to celebrate and witness the renewal of the vows of, of Bob and Jean Chin. If you guys want to come come forward. They asked to renew their vows today of all, of all days, which is really cool. And uh, they asked to renew their vows in front of the church. They see you as family. They are a committed couple, and it shows in every aspect of, of how they live their lives, how they follow Jesus. Is that good? Okay. They seek to serve God with all their hearts, souls, mind, and strength, and they're a strength to our church. So I was very honored to be able to be part of this. 
Are you, you want to hold those or you want to put them on the table? You want to hold them? Do we got a table we can put them on? Let's put them on this one. I would spend a lot of time preparing that bouquet. He's not, he's not going to lay that down. No, Mike, oh, okay. Well, he's, no, I'm just kidding. So Bob and Jean desire to express here in front of you their undying love for each other as a reminder of where that love comes from. I'm just going to read a few scriptures here. 1 John 3.16 says, We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. We also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. And there's a song that comes to my mind in these, in these times, and it, I want to read a couple verses to you. It says this, I could never promise you on just my strength alone that all my life I'd care for you and love you as my own. I've never known the future. I only see today. Words that last a lifetime would be more than I could say. But the love inside my heart today is more than mine alone. It never changes. It never fails. It never seeks its own. And by the God who gives it and who lives in me and you, I know the words I speak today are words I'm going to do. And so I stand before you now for all to hear and see and promise you in Jesus' name the love he's given me. And through the years on earth, and as eternity goes by, the life and love he's given us are never going to die. So Bob and Jean, today you recommit yourselves to honoring Christ and submitting to one another above your separate selves. Valuing your union above your own interests. And in this you connect with a wealth of love that's not available from anywhere else. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love never gives up never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. So now I'm going to pass the mic over to you guys, or I can hold it for you if you want, if, you, if you're reading your, your, your vows. They're going to they're gonna share their renewal vows this morning with one another. Um, I can't memorize anymore at this time in my life, so I had to write it down. I was only 17 when Bob and I met, um, and I was a freshman in college. And I was only 19 when we got married. And so what John is telling you is so very true and true for us. Um, in spite of all odds of being so young and getting married, um, God made it possible for it to last 50 years because without him, it would not have lasted. We've been on a grand adventure for God for 50 years. We've had good times. We've had hard times. We've laughed, we've cried, we've worked, we've played, and we've prayed together. We've raised two beautiful daughters, 
and we have a wonderful grandson, and we've adopted other grandchildren, one of which is here today. God has blessed us with a wonderful family, not only physical family, but a spiritual family. We feel like you are our family, and we love you, and we hope that we can bring joy to your life in this time. Bob, you faithfully loved me and cared for me and guarded my heart for 50 years. You cared for me when I was sick, cleaning, cooking, taking care of me, taking me to the doctor, not just for a week because I had a cold, but for some years now. And I want everyone to know what I've told you before, and that is that you are my knight in shining armor, the one God specially prepared for me, the one that God prepared to help me and to love me. I am thankful to God for you and for your faithful, steadfast love. Today, in the presence of God and our family, I'm committing myself to you for as long as I live, or maybe I should say recommitting. I promise to love and honor you, to stand by your side, to support you and to pray for you. I commit to work with you, to obey God with you. I love you with my whole heart. Your arm must be getting tired. <laughs> Jean, <clears throat> I have written and rewritten the vows I would say to you on this day. You are God's gift to me, even though I don't deserve you. You truly are a Proverbs 31 woman which starts, who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her. This proverb tells of a woman who is dedicated, hardworking, and compassionate. This is you. Matt said that he would sing a song if we had one. John said it was not for me to sing. But the song that came to my mind and our minds together was from the Temptations way back in the day, My Girl. I've got sunshine. On I can't remember the words now. <laughs> when it's cold outside, I have the month of May. I guess you can say, what can make me feel this way, my girl. You are the sunshine. 
since we met on that fateful day in September of 1967, and now 50 years of marriage, the love of Jesus has always shown through you. We have been on, we have been and are on a journey through the life together, whatever life is before us. As we have grown older, we don't hear as well. But I will always try to hear and listen you. We don't see as well either, but I will always see your beauty as my foxy lady and that the Lord has put in you. When we were younger, I could barely keep up with you. Now that I can walk faster, I will slow my pace and wait for you. And when you tire, I will sit with you for as long as you need. A racquetball friend said to me that you deserve a medal, a gold medal for putting up with me for these 50 years. I replied to him, yes, you do, and more. But then I also replied to him, and I said, I came home with the trophy. You are my trophy wife. Seriously, the center of our marriage is Jesus Christ. As we have drawn closer to him, we have grown closer to each other. We are in the twilight of our lives, and I commit to you all that I have to you as we continue this journey together. My love is greater now for you than it was 50 years ago. Before our Lord, our church family, and our friends, I renew my commitment and vows to you to love, cherish, and honor you that I may be more like an Ephesians 5 husband that will lay down his life his life for the church and to present you as Christ will present us a bride without spot or wrinkle. I love you, Jean Marie. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God our Father who loved us by his grace and gave us eternal comfort and wonderful hope comfort you and strengthen you in every good thing you do and say. Three things last forever, forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So inasmuch as you've sealed this renewal of your marriage and vows, in the presence of these gathered here, it gives me much pleasure to pronounce that you are now more than ever husband and wife. And I'd just like the elders who are here to come up and, and pray with me. We're going to do our corporate prayer now and just pray for Bob and Jean. Um, we pray together each week corporately. Uh, we pray as a body, and, and uh, this seemed like a fitting time to pray this morning. We'll, we'll go ahead and pray without the mic, and you guys can feel free to join in in prayer.
So today we were talking about Jesus making a lifelong commitment and inviting us into that. And I had asked Bob and Jean if, if uh, I could ask them a question about that. Um, and I was thinking, from where you guys are at, do you regret committing to Jesus and following him all these years? I have no regrets. I'm entirely blessed. The word for me this year is blessed. I'm blessed. I'm more excited today about our marriage than I was 50 years ago. In one of the pictures that a friend was taking, I was standing with the pastor in the kitchen because we got married in a house. And uh, it looked like I was ready to run. I think I was. But I have no regrets in marrying this woman. I have no regrets in accepting Christ as the one who died for my sin. He is the one who gives me life, gives me hope. Uh, it's his grace that I can stand before you now. And uh, no, I have no regrets. So this is the time in our in our gathering where we... Uh, celebrate together the Feast of Communion.